I was doing um, some research not long ago about where we got the expression, the shot heard round the world. And it turns out that for most of the references, it talks about the start of the American Revolution. Of course, on the night of April 18th and 1775, hundreds of British troops set off from Boston toward Concord, Massachusetts, so that they could seize weapons and an ammunition stockpile that the uh, uh, American colonists had planted there. Well, early the next morning, some Minutemen were, gun- Minutemen were gunned down in a skirmish uh, by Brit- with British troops that killed about eight Americans. And after pushing on into Concord, the Redcoats encountered a lot of resistance from a group of patriots at a place called the North Bridge. The skirmish routed the British who returned back to their garrison in Boston, but the Revolutionary War had begun. Well, so many years later, that incident there at the North Bridge was memorialized by Ralph Waldo Emerson, no less, in his 1837 poem called The Concord Hymn. Listen to the first stanza. He says, By the rude bridge that arched the flood, the flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmer stood and fired the shot heard round the world. And, of course, that little phrase began to enter into uh, America's cultural lexicon, did it not? So that we would refer to the beginning of World War I and the 1914 assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand as the shot heard round the world. Even sportcasters picked it up and using its phrase to describe what happened in 1951 when a game-winning three-run homer was hit by the New York Giants' Bobby Thompson against the Brooklyn Dodgers. Thanks to Thompson's shot, the Giants had the shot heard round the world and won the National League pennant. Well, The reason I mention that is because we've come to a place in our study where we really have gotten to the shot heard around the world in God's plan of events. Everything that happens in the book of Acts after this event happens because of this. And you really can't grasp it until you realize the massiveness of what happened. Michael Green, commentator, says this. He says, in the three decades after this, you have some of the most significant in world history. 30 years between AD 33 and 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It spread into every corner of the globe and has now more than 2 billion adherents. It's had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and, of course, on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all of this, he says, the time when it took decisive root was in these decades. And every bit of it began with a dozen men and a handful of women when the Spirit came. Look, it's not only just the 30 years after. Think about what happened even beyond then when you have this this, this expansion of a ragtag group of people, uneducated for the most part, launched this movement preaching nothing more than a crucified and raised Messiah who were able to mount a movement which ended up taking over the Roman Empire in less than three centuries. How do you account for that? Well, the Bible's answer was is that there was something going on behind the scenes of human understanding and that the agent of this dramatic and unprecedented movement was none other than the Holy Spirit. That's the acts that are being detailed here. Look, this fall, we're marching into this new phase of Jesus' ministry, and we see now where the revolution begins. You remember last week we were talking about the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, 8 saying that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Remember that? And what we have, though, now is when Jesus ascended into heaven last week, what follows in his coronation was a king giving gifts. 
Well, verses 1 through 12 are those gifts, and it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. But of course, like a lot of revolutions, well, even though you're in the midst of it and you realize nothing's going to be the same after this, it's very normal for people to struggle with exactly what went on. When you first read this story, you might feel some affinity with those people there in verse 12 when they say, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? I think any modern reader would think this was strange when the Spirit comes. And so we want to ask the exact same question. So I've got just two questions for us this morning. The first one is this, what did this mean to them? And then secondly, what does it mean to us? Let's see if we can't dive into that. Look, what did this mean to them? Well, if the meaning of all this commotion I think is going to be unlocked, I think you need to understand three keys. And if you can wrap your mind around these three things, it'll help you understand what was happening here in the minds of these people. We need to look at the date, the wind and the fire, and then finally the tongues. Look at that first one, the date. Look, all of this happens on a very significant date of a very established Jewish holiday that we call Pentecost. Back in Leviticus 25, 15, God had told his people that they were supposed to count seven weeks until the Passover and bring in what he called their first fruits. These were like the very first of the wheat bundles, I guess, that they would bring as an offering. So therefore, you had 49 days afterwards, the next day you had a feast on that day. By the way, the word Pentecost just means 50 days. And they called this feast the Feast of Weeks. And over time, for the Jewish people, it came to be associated with that time when Moses was on Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments and the law, because that was 50 days after the Passover. That's why it was significant. But what's interesting about the Feast of Weeks, though, is it's a holiday that didn't occur after the harvest came in, which is kind of when you'd expect to have a party, but it actually took place before the whole harvest came in. Why? Because for some reason, God wanted his people to get used to having a, an experience of something that was good, but with the knowledge that something better was coming. And I think this is your first clue to how the Holy Spirit works in your life. Because the Holy Spirit comes to do drops, as it were, into a believer's life that we know will be multiplied in spades, both in this life and certainly in the life to come. This is why Paul in Ephesians 1.13 will say that Jesus' followers, quote, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Do you see how he's talking? That word there that he says guarantee can be used as the word deposit. Think of it this way. My assumption is that most of you have been in the process of purchasing a house. And oftentimes, in order to show that you're serious about buying the house, the, the seller will ask you to put down what we call earnest money. What is earnest money? Earnest money is simply a statement to say, I'm going to put this down as a statement of intent that I'm going to pay the rest later. And so for Christianity, our promise is that God is coming to do something amazing as he advances the world to its destination. And that is it's going to be a healing. He's going to put it into all the decay He's going to show up in glorious power when everything's going to be made new and lovely again. So much so that the Apostle Paul is going to say in Romans 8.32 that you and I now have the, ready for the language, first fruits of the Spirit. You hear him? That's Pentecost language. In other words, it's not the whole harvest. We're waiting on that. All I'm giving you now is a drop, just a taste, the first fruits of what's to come. 
By the way, this is why we talk the way we do in our service when I say that we are here to launch a healing. And I always qualify that by saying both in our own hearts and in the world around us. Why? Well, because when God moves on our hearts, he does so so that we can go take that spirit and spread its effects into every nook and cranny of the world. That's the idea. There's a renewal that's coming, and you and I have the first taste of it. And the Jews knew it from the beginning, from the Feast of Weeks. So that's the importance of the date, these people. But secondly, understand the importance of the wind and the fire. And I can say this simply. (laughs) When the wind and fire show up, it's God. Not manifestations of God, but God himself. Again, go back to Exodus 19. We find that when Moses goes up to the mountain of Sinai, like the whole thing bursts into flames and smoke. God showed up there. And and, and again, he does it again over the Holy of Holies when the tabernacle gets dedicated. But get this. Now, in this room where they're all praying, that same fire is on top of everybody's heads. They immediately would have known what that meant. God is back. (laughs) But he's not up on a fiery mountain. He's not over the tabernacle. He is dwelling in each and every human heart. That's where he's dwelling. But the question is, okay, okay, so what does that presence mean? And I realize that we struggle to know, to have some kind of analog with those early experiences. Typically, when you think about the Holy Spirit, your mind kind of trends to some kind of weird superstitions. You know, being filled with the Spirit is, I don't know, kind of this weird electricity kind of took me over, and uh, I had this abstract sort of naked power. No, the text actually says something else. When these people, when these men and women got the Spirit, they started talking. That's how you knew the Spirit came, because they began to speak truths about God. Look what it says in verse 11. They're there declaring the wonders of God. Being filled with the Spirit means getting and then proclaiming the great works of God, truths about God. And the question comes, what was that? What are the great wonders of God? Well, I read one commentator who I thought brought up something fascinating. He says, if you go back to the book of Exodus, which are all these echoes are coming straight from, Especially in in, in chapter 34, you have Moses asking God a really interesting question. Because he goes to God and he's kind of like, God, I want you to show me your glory. Show me something that I should be excited about. Show me something that will blow my mind. Make me wonder at you, God. And God's like, okay, you'll never see me and live. But I tell you what I do. I'm going to hide you back behind a rock here. And I'm going to let my backside pass around you. I have no idea what that means, but that's what it says. And then as he does, Yahweh declares his name. Listen to what he says. He says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and even the fourth generation. Okay, did you catch that? Did that sound like a bit of a contradiction to you? I mean, if God says that he loves to forgive his people, that's great. Too enthusiastic, thumbs up for that. But then he says that he'll never let sin go unpunished. But if he loves his people and wants to have fellowship with them, he can't, can he? Because he can't let debts go unpaid. But if he can't let the debts go unpaid, then he can't show their love to him because they're still under judgment. One of the great problems of Exodus 34 is how can the God of the universe hold both promises? 
And that very question, I think, is exactly what these people get. When the Spirit falls, they understand how God can keep both. Because what if all of a sudden what they saw in God's act happened on the cross? Because when they saw Jesus, they realized that on Jesus, all of God's anger at sin and punishment for sin was poured out on him in our stead. So that in that exact same act, he could then let the exact act be the thing that causes us to have fellowship with him again. (laughs) In other words, the father can now be with his people because of his son. The way God keeps both promises from Exodus 34 is at the cross. It's the only way. Look, this is more important than you think. I realize this sounds very abstract and theological, but it's a whole lot more important than you think because I would submit to you that the problem of the two promises is your biggest spiritual problem this morning as well. Because the inertia in our hearts sort of pulls us back and forth to one of these two options, doesn't it? For some of us, we're people who have an idea of a loving God, but there's really no sense of justice in them. There's no holiness or law there. And so therefore, boundaries kind of feel like suggestions to you. We look at God's laws if it's fairly optional. And when we ever have breaches of it, we're like, well, he's God. I mean, he forgives me. That's kind of what he does. We think small of him. That's a spiritual problem. But for others of us, we have a just God full of holiness, but with no love. For those people, there's really no peace now, is there? We don't just obey God's law. We do so because we're afraid of this this guilty verdict that hangs over us. But my point is, both of those spiritual ailments are equally spiritually destructive. But when God shows himself himself to Moses in the fire on Mount Sinai, what he's trying to show him is, Moses, eventually I am going to be both just and the justifier. And the way I'm going to do that is through my son Jesus. And all of a sudden, when the Holy Spirit falls on these people, it's, it's, it's a literal epiphany. The lights come on. They see it for the first time. They see all of the goodness of God and all of the holiness of God coming together in Jesus. Scottish hymn writer Horatius Bonner puts it this way. He says, never has there been love like this of God, this love of God. So large, so broad, so glorious, so so self-sacrificing. Yet never has the law been so pure and so broad, so glorious and so unbreakable. But there has been no compromise. Law and love have both had their full scope. Not one jot or tittle has been surrendered to the full. The one in all its severity, the other in all its tenderness. Love has never been more truly love, and the law has never been more truly law than in the conjunction of the two at the cross of Jesus. That's the vision. That's what they see. And when it hit them, it was the Spirit, and he ignited their imaginations, and they couldn't not talk about it. They began to declare the the, the wonders of God. I mean, think about it. Moses only saw the back parts of God, whatever that is. But these people are saying, we saw him face to face. We saw Jesus face to face. And it blew their minds. Hence, the wind and the fire. What brings me to the third. If you can grasp that one, the third sort of key to understanding this text is in the tongues. Because look, people began, when this all happened, to start talking in languages that they did not grow up learning, which is weird, agreeably. But look, go back to Genesis 11 and remember what happened when God passed judgment on all of humanity because they were trying to usurp his ultimate authority by building a big tower up to heaven. 
called the Tower of Babel. Why do we call it the Tower of Babel? Because God, in judgment, confused all of their languages so they would scatter because of it. But hear this, the motions of grace, the motions of redemption are leading in history to God coming together and reorganizing all of these scattered people into a regathering of all humanity under Christ. So that when all of a sudden people begin to speak in tongues, they're seeing that now what happened at Babel is being overturned. The point of the miracle was not the coolness of the miracle. Wow, Bob, you never grew up speaking Swahili. How did you do that? That's not the point. It's what it suggests that's important. In other words, God is showing that he is lifting the curse of sin. And eventually, all humanity is going to submit to God in Christ Jesus. People get very weirded out, I understand, by the gift of tongues. But understand something. Whatever it means for us today, it's God planting his flag and saying, now I am going to start to fulfill the project that was started in Genesis chapter 3. When I predicted that I was going to crush the head of Satan, I was going to get rid of all these things that separate us. And now I'm going to show that my church, this gathering of us right here, right now, is going to be a multinational, multicultural, multiracial gathering of all humanity. There's going to be people that are going to be here that have, have affinities far beyond any kind of racial or ethnic or whatever things that we think are important in our day. They'll be united around the wonder of the gospel of what God has done in Jesus Christ. These are what's going off in their minds, I think, what it meant to them. Secondly, though, and finally, what does this mean for us? And I do think this is where it gets confusing for people because it has to be admitted that there is a solid chunk of worldwide Christianity that believes that the coming of the Spirit is always going to be and necessarily going to be associated with these miraculous signs of wonders. Um, I respectfully disagree. Uh, my conviction is, and the conviction of the historical body of theology and Bible doctrine behind this church, is that these stories are descriptive of something that happened and how God sort of inaugurated his church. They are not, as we say, prescriptive. That is something that's supposed to be practiced henceforth. And so for that reason, our church and the doctrine of our church has held that what we might call the ecstatic gifts of the Spirit were intended for that time and that period in the church's history when God was rooting and establishing exactly what his continued revelation was going to be through the apostles. But once the apostles died out, their words were encoded in Scripture, that you and I call the New Testament, so that therefore the miraculous manifestations of the Spirit also passed away with them for lack of need because the canon is closed. Jesus has said everything that needs to be said. He's passed it on to these apostles, and once they died out, it was complete. One commentator, former professor of mine, said this. He said, the phenomenon of tongues was one of those signs or marks of apostleship, like it says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The apostolic commission, though, was unrepeatable and a foundational ministry that served to establish the New Testament church, like it says in Ephesians 2.20. The supernatural signs that were performed by the apostles served to testify to this unique and divine commission. Now hear this. Thus, the signs that accompanied the apostles in their unrepeatable and foundational ministry were themselves unrepeatable, temporary, and time-specific to the apostolic age. So yes, 
we have a certain position when it comes to those kinds of ecstatic manifestations. Now, for a lot of people, they hear that and they're like, oh, okay, I'm not sure what to think about that, but I'm going to think about it. <clears throat> but what does that do for this passage? <laughs> How in the world am I supposed to apply to something that was just descriptive of an admittedly weird thing that happened 2,000 years ago? Well, that could be another series of sermons, quite frankly, but I want to mention at least just two as we close this morning. I think the first thing that Pentecost means to us is the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit is the best gift that Jesus could give to his church, and therefore to you as an individual. Do a quick Bible study for a second. One of my favorite verses that comes off of the lips of Jesus comes from Matthew 7, 11, when he says this. He says, look, if you then, being evil, don't you love how flattering Jesus is about us? You, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children? How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Okay, so you think to yourself, what are those good things? Maybe a better job, maybe a better house, you know, a personal peace, whatever. Well, when you want to find out what Jesus thinks is the best gift, you have to compare what you have in Matthew with another time when Jesus said a phrase very much like that. We assume he said these phrases often, but then he tweaked it just a little bit for what you get in Luke eleven thirteen, when Luke sort of changes that last half of that saying to how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Put those two together and what you have is Jesus saying, the heavenly father wants to give you a good gift. And you want to know what the best gift he could give is? It's the Holy Spirit. Look, there's a sense in which our identity as the people of God is surrounded by a prayer that asks for the Holy Spirit to come and do with me what you will. Holy Spirit, fall upon me. Inhabit our praise. Convict our hardness of hearts. Move us forward into this, this city and this state. There is no more dangerous prayer to your status quo than you can pray than asking for the Holy Spirit to come and be present. Because this is what he does. He comes and brings that because that's where the power is. Which brings me to the second point of application. And that's simply this, that what we live in now, because of what happened at Pentecost, is a brand new era of the Spirit in his work. Look, there is a real sense in which you and I live in a time of a very different operation of the Spirit that was unique from what went before the Pentecost and what we might look at Old Testament believers. But look, do not make the mistake that the Spirit never showed up until Pentecost. He was still there in the Old Testament, absolutely. Worse, don't make this mistake of thinking that God like turned into the Spirit at Pentecost. We call that a heresy. Don't, don't go in that direction. Rather, what we're saying is, is there was all of a sudden a turning on of a strength that happened at Pentecost. Again, I had a seminary professor who told a story about, it, about the huge hydroelectric dam that was under construction for years called the Aswan High Dam on the Nile, the Nile River in Egypt. The thing apparently is 375 feet tall. It's 11,000 feet wide. It was commissioned in 1953 by President Nasser and not completed until like 1970. It's a huge project. Well, in 1972, they threw a big ceremony to turn these doggone things on. Twelve giant turbines with, 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 a, with a 10 billion kilowatt per hour capacity <laughs> that unleashed enough power to light and power every city in the entire nation of Egypt. Amazing experience. But here's what you've got to realize, that while it was being constructed for those almost 20 years, they didn't completely stop up the Nile River. 
But the engineers constructed it in such a way that even as the reservoir was filling, a certain portion of the river could flow around it into the country folk downstream who really depended on it. They drank it. They washed, the, they washed themselves in it. They watered their crops. They turned their mill wheels with it. But on the day when the reservoir poured through the turbines, there was an unleashing of power. It was far beyond anything what the people downriver ever thought that they could have from what they got from the original Nile. That's what we're talking about. The Old Testament was simply a stream that was going around God's intention for what he was about to flip a switch on in Pente at Pentecost. But this is what's crazy. <laughs> what happened at Pentecost is only a drop of what's coming for us one day, someday. God do, releases his spirit in these sort of epical histories of time where he sort of explodes in power to bring creative movements all over the place. And here's what I want to stress this morning in closing. You and I live in that reality. Think about it. You're here this morning because of what happened at Pentecost. You are downstream of that kind of power. And you know what that means, I think, for us at least? It means that we've got to give up on our small aspirations. We've got to stop thinking so little about what the Spirit can do. The Holy Spirit is to come in power, and a power that we can trust, a power that we can call upon in the hopes of helping me guide my way through a pandemic that I don't know how to make decisions on the basis of. That the Holy Spirit is able to give softness of heart to that family member of yours that has gone wayward and is moving as far away from God's purposes in their lives as they can. The Holy Spirit is able to give you abilities to dislodge that besetting sin that has plagued you for as long as it has. The Holy Spirit has the ability to soften both your heart and the heart of your spouse, even in the mornings when you wake up and think to yourself, I don't think I can do this anymore. We've got to get rid of our small aspirations because the Spirit has come. And you're saying to yourself right now, I don't see that, I don't feel that, I don't experience that. Okay, okay, okay. But just for a second, dream of a time when it can be. See what God predicts about the future and see what it does to you when you all of a sudden start to think to yourself, these streams on earth that I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. Because there, to an ocean fullness, his mercy doth expand. Because glory, glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. You get a sight of that and something opens up, does it not? May it be true of us and of our church. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, then would you guide us into that. Father, even as we sing, may our song become a prayer to you that you would fall upon us and transform us, heal our hurts, Heal our land. Heal our wounds that we've inflicted on each other time and time again. Because the fruits of the Spirit, Father, we long to see love and joy and peace and gentleness and patience. All those things that you bring, we need it so badly. So may we be so bold, so daring, as to say, come Holy Spirit, fall upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.